special uh, couple of days. Uh, of course, yesterday we did our, uh, our Ignite class as we were going through the Spirit-Led Life. It was great to have Dr. Gary Kellner with us uh, Thursday. Uh, Dr. Kellner and I were with uh, Newman International Academy on their Fielder campus and uh, for their Founders Day and then a reception and then some one-on-one uh, -on time with Dr. George just talking about what God's activity is, what he's uh, doing uh, through the education system. And uh, it's just been a wonderful time. And uh, I know that Gary has a good word for us this morning. Gary, why don't you come? Why don't you share? And can we just welcome him with a round of applause? Good morning, everyone. It's great to be in Texas. Boy, it's a lively group this morning. I know it is a wonderful privilege for me to be with you in this great church with a great history, but also with a great present and a great future. We are living in the greatest day in the history of the church, the greatest day of opportunity that we have ever seen in our lives. And this morning, I wanna to talk to you about this day that we're living in. I wanna to talk to you about breakthrough. If there was ever a need for breakthrough, it's today. The last two years have shown us how fragile our lives can be. When within a span of 48 or 72 hours, healthy people are cut down in the prime of life, where every plan is subject to being overturned at a moment's notice. The world political system is completely broken. Our nation is divided. Perhaps at no time since our civil war 150 years ago. People have lost faith in the ability of government at every level. Cities, counties, states, federal. People have lost faith that government can provide the most basic services. I think everybody recognizes whether you are Christian or non-Christian. Jesus follower or curious observer. I think we all recognize that something has to happen in this country. But when we talk about breakthrough, it doesn't mean we really understand it, how they come or what to expect. So I just want to talk about that for a few moments this morning because I am convinced that the greatest breakthrough in the history of this church and this city is just over the horizon. First of all, I wanna to suggest to you that breakthroughs come in desperate times. You might wanna write that down because it could really come in handy for you. Breakthroughs come in desperate times. Now, perhaps the most outstanding example of that in the Old Testament is the Exodus. The children of Israel had been slaves for 400 years 
to the world's wealthiest and most powerful empire. They had no hope of ever being free. They were not free. Their parents were not free. Their grandparents were not free. There was no chance of anything ever changing. But in a single night, God broke the yoke of slavery and led them out. And when Pharaoh missed the point and chased them to the Red Sea, God showed up in one of the most dramatic breakthroughs in history. Now, how many of you know that if Pharaoh's army is in front of you, the Red Sea is behind you, the mountains are on either side of you, and the Lord opens a path between the sea, that is a breakthrough. Now, that's certainly true of the greatest breakthrough in human history, the moment when the Word became flesh. There had not been a prophetic word in 450 years. Now, if you have any history at all in the Spirit-empowered church, you know that we believe in a quickened word from the Lord. We believe in the prophetic. And in a lot of churches, if they had one Sunday where there was not a quickened word, they would be concerned. After four weeks, the pastor would be talking to his presiding bishop or his district superintendent, wondering if his ministry was over in that particular place. If it was eight weeks, the deacon board would be wondering with him. Now imagine 450 years where the heavens were like brass, where there was no word from the Lord. Imagine the discouragement, the depression. The Mediterranean world was controlled by a brutal military dictatorship. The religious life of the nation was dominated by grim legalists on one side and collaborators on the other. We have had moments like this before in American history. 1857 was one of the worst years in American history. I remember it well. I was in junior high school. In the spring, the stock market crashed. For more than a decade, the nation had been rocked by a series of political crises centered on the issue of slavery. National leaders had shown a complete inability to deal with the crisis. Most people believed that the nation was headed for the rocks. In the midst of that crisis, God spoke to a man. How many of you know that in the midst of any crisis, there's a man sent from God whose name was John. There's a man sent from God whose name was Moses. There's a man sent from God whose name was Isaiah. Well, this particular man's name was Jeremiah Lamphere. He wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a political leader. He was not a great intellectual. He was not a newspaper man. He was, in fact, a part-time church custodian and Bible salesman. His career had been distinguished by nothing. He had succeeded at nothing. His prospects were nothing. Except when he looked at what was happening in New York City. And he saw the discouragement and the despair of the people. He knew there were problems only God could fix. 
So he got it in his heart to start a prayer meeting. He advertised it in his church, among his friends. And when the time for the prayer meeting came, only one man showed up. But kind of one thing that characterizes the American temperament is initiative. And if anybody knows about pure American stubbornness and cussedness, it's Texans. It really doesn't matter how many soldiers Santa Ana has. We're going to hold up and we're going to take them all on. Texans are a lot like the Irish. Growing up in an Irish community, I know that. When I was a kid, I was so belligerent, I would see a fight on the street and I would say, is this a private fight or can anybody join? <laughs> Lanfear had that spirit. And rather than be discouraged, he printed handbills and distributed them to every church, to every business, to every store, to every theater in Manhattan. Three weeks later, they gathered 19 people. Might not sound like much of a start, but from 2 to 19 is really a big leap. Poor Lamphere was so shy that he couldn't even pray. And he just kind of stammered and said to the guy sitting across him, would you, would, 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 would you pray? So the guy prayed a couple sentences, and Lamphere still couldn't say anything. He looked at the person next to him and pointed, and he prayed. And each person said a sentence or two around the circle. When they were done, they left. Within a few weeks... The upper room at the church was full, and then the sanctuary was full, and then 19 other churches were full, and then every theater on Broadway was full. The internet of the 1850s, the telegraph, carried the word of what was happening in New York to every city in America. And as young telegraphers, 14, 15-year-old boys, you know Information technology hasn't changed that much. Bill Gates said if you want to hire a great information technology manager, hire a 13-year-old. And so those young telegraphers would go back to the office and they would pound out the story of what God was doing in New York City. And within seconds, it went all across the United States of America. Within four months, everybody hold up four fingers. Not four years, not four decades, four months. Everybody say four months. See, God says, behold, I do a quick work. We're used to thinking in terms of days, weeks, months, and years. But when God sends a breakthrough, God can do more in a few weeks or a few months than we can do in decades. Can somebody give the Lord some praise in this place? Within just four months, more than 100,000 people were converted in New York City. Now, I'm going to tell you, if you can have revival in New York City, you can have it anywhere. Oh, by the way, the population then was only 600,000. So one out of every six New Yorkers was saved. And the presence of God on the city was so strong that one ship sailed through the Verrazano Narrows, and this is what the captain recorded in his ship's log. He said, sailed through the narrows today, and a strange spirit came upon the ship's company. And every man, he's talking sailors. And I would suggest that if God can bless sailors, he could bless just about anything. But he said, every man in the ship's company cried out to God for mercy. 
within 12 months, more than 1 million Americans had come to Jesus Christ. The greatest revival in the history of our nation wasn't led by a personality, wasn't led by a denomination, wasn't led by a, multi, um, um, a mega church, it wasn't led by a parachurch ministry, it was led by the Spirit of God Himself as people cried out for Him to do something fresh in their own day. You say, well, that was then and this is now. But I'm going to tell you, a generation later, America was in crisis again. America saw incredible growth in the decades after our Civil War. Modernization, urbanization, immigration, industrialization. The cities were just exploding. Cities like Dallas and Fort Worth that had numbered a couple of hundred people at the time of the Civil War had become sprawling metropolises by 1900. Nothing worked very well in most cities. The sewers didn't work. They had railroad lines going everywhere. The scriptures were under attack. Some leaders responded by caving in, others by digging in. One side said the answer for the church is to adapt to modern culture, even if that means throwing everything we believe under the bus. The other side fought for everything, surrendered nothing, including the 17th century language of the King James Bible, because if King James English was good enough for Jesus, it was good enough for them. Now, God answered in a livery stable in Los Angeles, California, with a spirit moment that redefined the church and mission. It launched a movement where people stopped coming to church and they learned how to be the church. And the leader of that revival was not a seminary educated preacher, was not someone from a distinguished family. He was the one-eyed son of a former slave, a man who was semi-literate whose wife had to read the biblical text for him. See, when God comes, it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. And in that world, there's neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, male or female, white or black. Ethnicity doesn't matter. Economic standing doesn't matter. Political affiliation doesn't matter. But there was this incredible magnetism in that revival at Azusa Street. When the spirit fell, there probably weren't more than a dozen people in the room. In fact, they had to move out of the living room and the little house on Bonnie Bray Street and moved onto the porch. And nobody ever thought about checking the supports under the porch. And once they got a piano there and started to have rock and Pentecostal services, one day the porch collapsed. You knew it was a miracle because nobody got killed. People came from all over the world, from Scandinavia, from India from Latin America, from Africa. And from those very humble beginnings, from a dozen people who received the baptism of the Holy Spirit till today, 643 million people around the world are spirit-empowered believers. But what I want you to catch is this. Breakthroughs come in desperate times. Now, somebody should say, praise God, because we're really positioned well. 
The second thing I want to note is that breakthroughs come suddenly. That is true in politics, business, science, and technology. One of the most, most of the significant advances in the history of civilization came in a single moment when a person had a flash of insight. Now, a committee was meeting in prehistoric times to try to figure out how to move goods more efficiently. And you know what a committee is? It's the unfit appointed by the unwilling to do the unnecessary. A camel is a horse that was built by a committee. <laughs> and one guy had a flash of insight. If we knocked the corners off of the square rock, it would turn better. Of course, the committee voted it down. But the steam engine, the light bulb, for those of you of a certain age, we get to a certain age. Oh, I love seeing the Chi Alpha guys here. People of my age are not old. Actually, we are. Most of us can remember when the Dead Sea was only sick. <laughs> Some of us are, in fact, older than dirt. But some of us here are old enough to remember the invention of the cathode tube. That was what made the television possible 70 years ago. And it absolutely changed life on this planet. More recently, the computer chip. More recently still, the cell phone. What I want to suggest to you is that if breakthroughs come quickly and suddenly in politics and in science and technology, the truth is paralleled in the spiritual realm. Listen to Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in one place and one accord when, everybody say with me, suddenly they heard a sound from heaven like a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And you know what happened? 3,000 people came to Jesus on just one day. And a few days later, the number went to 5,000. And then God's math changed. And he said, they filled the city with their doctrine. I would suggest to you this morning that we are living in a season of suddenlies. On a cloudless morning in September 2001, two planes crashed into the twin towers of the World Trade Center. And suddenly, all of us were living in a different world. In many ways, this season began with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of communism in 1989. October of that year, the CIA released a report that said they could see no meaningful change coming in the Soviet Union for at least 50 years. 30 days later, the Berlin Wall fell. By Christmas, a ruthless dictator was toppled in Romania, and the people had led a bloodless revolution in Czechoslovakia. I've spent the last 23 years in Ukraine, and I've seen it there. An incredible revival started in Ukraine in 1986 in a camp meeting, an underground camp meeting. It started with a few dozen people, and the Spirit of God began to draw people to this little corner of Ukraine down near the Moldovan border, and eventually 20,000 people gathered illegally underground 
for this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. When communism fell, there were maybe 200,000 believers in Ukraine. Within 10 years, there were three and a half million. When that revival started in Kiev, there were six churches, most of which met in a clandestine way. Within 10 years, there were more than 600 churches in Kiev. The largest of them, God has such a cool sense of humor because in their souls, Ukrainians are really pretty prejudiced. And so when God decided to throw them a real curveball with the revival, he took a young man from Nigeria and put it in his heart to start a church. Within 10 years, he had 45,000 people meeting on 45 campuses. The mayor of Kiev was saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit. The lady with the braids that you've seen in the Ukrainian Revolution, she was saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit and eventually became the prime minister of the nation. You want to know what this war is really about? I'm going to tell you what it's about. It, the media would have you believe that this is all about geopolitics and it is all about empires. And there's some truth in that, but not a lot. The real story is that Vladimir Putin holds the church responsible for the revolution in 2004, for the revolution in 2014, and he is scared to death that that virus is going to show up on the streets of Moscow and he won't be able to contain it. This is the dragon against the man-child. Be absolutely crystal clear what this is. I get reports by email and phone every day of another pastor who has been ca captured, another pastor's wife who has been murdered, another church that has been destroyed by artillery. That's what it's about. But in 2004, they had an election. Now, in Ukraine, they learned how to run elections from Chicago. Vote early, vote often. And they believe in democracy. There's absolutely no reason that a person's death should keep them from voting. So the old guys, all of whom had come out of the communist time and looked about as grim as death, had pretty well managed to keep things under control. And their candidate won by... One and a half percent. It was a miracle. There were some cities where more people voted than had ever lived there. Now, most of the time, folks who live under bad governments just put up with it. They'll grouse. They're not happy, but they put up with it. But what happened this time shocked everybody. The next morning, there were 10,000 people in the Independent Square praying. By Sunday, there were 100,000. In three weeks, there were a million. And the president realized that the gig was up. There were a brigade of Russian sharpshooters brought from Russia to disperse the crowds. The chief of staff to the president, who later became my friend, told me later he had a completely sleepless night. And he said, I heard a voice that said, Go to the president at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning and tell him you have been a good president, but you can't be a man of blood. Call for a new election. 
Now, what he didn't know is a lieutenant general who had been over the Soviet space program had gotten saved and baptized in the Holy Spirit, and he was in that Nigerian pastor's congregation. And he had gone to his pastor, and they had called the entire nation to fasting and prayer because he told them about the Russian sharpshooters. So while the church was praying, the Holy Ghost was speaking, and when they got the new election, they didn't get a perfect candidate because there aren't any. They, they, you know, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Some politicians just come a lot shorter than other folks. I shouldn't say short. We don't say short anymore. In my particular case, we say under tall. <laughs> I much prefer vertically challenged. They called the new election. The candidate who favored the church won. And there was great joy in the city. I have seen it in Kenya. I've seen it during COVID. I have seen sudden breakthroughs. Don't be discouraged by the, what you see with your eyes. Don't be discouraged by what you hear with your ears. Let your eyes see the vision that God would give to you. Let your ears hear the word of God. Now, when I talk about subtleties, it doesn't mean they come magically or without effort. Thomas Edison was perhaps the greatest inventor of all time, in addition to the first practical incandescent light bulb, which changed life on this planet. He invented the phonograph and the movie camera. He held over a thousand patents in the US alone, founded 14 companies, including GE, and built the world's first industrial research lab. Probably nobody ever understood breakthrough better than Edison. And listen to what he said about himself. He said, I never did anything by accident, nor did any, nor did any of my inventions come by accident. They came by work. He said, I never failed. I just found 10,000 ways that would not work. They come suddenly. Number three, it brings us to people. Breakthroughs come through unlikely people. Now turn to the person next to you and say, I'm sure he's talking about you. Now, I think this is really a principle of scripture. He called a childless, rootless septuagenarian to become the father of the faithful. He called an 80-year-old stutterer to be his mouthpiece to Pharaoh. He called a scrawny, red-headed kid to fell a Philistine giant. Jesus didn't go to the seminaries and universities of the day to find men and women to launch a worldwide revolution. He called a ragtag collection of fishermen, tax collectors, and peasants. Now, I'm going to tell you, if you're going to use folks from the IRS to bring breakthrough, the world must really be in trouble. <laughs> now, perhaps nobody was never more unlikely than the one who made the NFL a household word. A name that's not remembered so well today, though there are a few folks here I think could remember the name Johnny Unitas, or Johnny U, as he was known to a generation of football fans. He didn't look like a hero. He had stooped shoulders, skinny bowed legs, long dangly arms, buck teeth, and chicken breast chest. And despite the fact that he was a Catholic kid from Pittsburgh, 
and had been all city, Notre Dame passed up on him because at 5'11 and 138 pounds, they were afraid he would get broken in practice. Only the University of Louisville offered him a scholarship. That would be Louisville and other places. When he graduated, he couldn't even stick with the Pittsburgh Steelers, who were not just the worst team in the league, they were the most miserable team in the history of football up to that time. His only mark on Steeler history was a picture of him teaching a Chinese nun how to throw a football. And yet this skinny, buck-toothed Lithuanian kid from Pittsburgh, who didn't look like a football player, led a group of misfits and castaways to two consecutive world championships. He threw for touchdowns in 47 consecutive games, set every record in his era, and defined a position of quarterback until a fellow named Brady came along and redefined it. Which brings me back to Azusa Street and William J. Seymour. If ever there was a more unlikely person, it was Seymour. He lived in Jim Crow America. When he went to the Bible school in Houston, which was very much a southern town in those days, because of Jim Crow, he wasn't allowed to sit in the classroom with the other students. He was made to sit in the hallway. He felt his exclusion. He felt his powerlessness, except he heard a message, even through the bent and warped and twisted culture of that time. He heard a message about the power of the Holy Spirit to make anybody useful. And it grabbed hold of him. And Seymour, who had never succeeded at anything in his life, had a word from the Lord that if he would go to Los Angeles, God would send a mighty revival. He was so shy and read so poorly that he had to have his wife read the Bible text. He was so insecure that when they hammered together two shoeboxes to provide a pulpit, poor Seymour couldn't look at the crowd until the anointing came on him. He would keep his head in the shoebox for hours at a time, and he only came out when he had something to say. Can you imagine how much shorter services would be in some churches in Fort Worth today if pastors only spoke when they really had something to say? By the way, uh, I'm an equal opportunity abuser. If I can't insult you during the sermon, please come and see me in the lobby afterward. I'll be happy to do it. Why does God do this? Well, I think it's to show us not what we can do, but what only he can do. That God can work through anybody, anywhere, anytime. Fourth and finally, breakthroughs only come through struggle. Abraham Lincoln was perhaps our greatest president. I knew him well. We were boys together in Indiana. Lincoln was born to a dirt poor family on the fringe of Western civilization. His life was marked by struggle. His family was desperately poor. 
Lincoln's mother died when he was nine. He didn't get along well with his father. Here's a clue to the deal with the father. When Lincoln turned 21, he left home and only saw his father twice before the man died 20 years later. And he didn't even attend his father's funeral. He lost the woman he loved in his mid-20s. He went bankrupt, and it took him years to pay off his creditors when his business partner skipped town with the money. He was married to a woman with such a difficult personality that Lincoln's law partner affectionately referred to her as the Hellcat. Two of his sons died in childhood. He lost more elections than he won. His election to the presidency triggered a civil war. Great thing about Lincoln is he never lost his sense of humor. And when he was elected, immediately South Carolina leaves the Union and very quickly followed by Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and the state of Texas. <laughs> Bad timing on the whoop. <laughs> To quote George H.W. Bush, bad, bad. <laughs> so a newspaper reporter asked Lincoln how he felt. Don't you love newspaper reporters? There's all this destruction and mayhem, and somebody sticks a microphone under somebody's nose and said, how does this feel? So the guy looks at Lincoln and he goes, how does it feel? Well, he absolutely knew that he was going to be the trigger of a civil war. Well, Lincoln looked at him. He said, it's a lot like getting run out of town on a rail. If it weren't for all the attention I'm getting, I would just as soon leave town another way. Most of his life, he struggled with faith issues to such an extent that Lincoln himself acknowledged he was not a believer until he walked the field at Antietam in 1862. And as he walked that field and saw the carnage, he began to weep, and he said, Lord, if you will preserve my life, I will save the Union, and I will serve you the rest of my life. Only a man who had faced that kind of crushing disappointment and overcome a lifetime of obstacles could have overcome the pressures he faced. Second Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. And you know that word pray is the same word to describe a woman in labor. It's travail. It's struggle. Some of you here have carried a burden in your heart for this church, for this generation, for this city. Some of you for decades. Sometimes it's awakened you in the night. Maybe you wanted to do something else, go somewhere else, be something else. But there's something right here that you cannot escape. That is the Spirit of God signaling to your spirit what He wants to do. You may be in the midst of a different kind of struggle this morning. You may be in the midst of a health crisis or personal problems. Maybe there's a struggle with some kind of addiction or deep hurts in your own life. Maybe the breakthrough that you need isn't for the church or for the city. Maybe you just need a breakthrough yourself. Maybe you feel like your Christianity has just hit the wall. And no matter how hard you try, no matter how often you read your Bible, no matter how much you pray, nothing happens. 
Well, let me tell you, you are in the best possible place for a breakthrough today. That's the moment we're living in. Pastor mentioned our going to the Founders Day for the Newman schools on Thursday. I watched those hundreds of kids. On one part of me, I rejoiced, but because I've spent a lifetime in education, I've spent a lot of my life in the garbage dumps of Africa, India, Mexico. My heart also broke because I could see the hurt and the pain in that generation. And then I thought about this church and the fact that God is delivering a broken generation on your doorstep five days a week. A lot of churches are trying to figure out what to do next. God has dumped them right here and given you an opportunity, not just to help people miss hell and make heaven, but to change a generation, to change a city. See, the best days of this church are not behind you. This is the day the Lord has made. He brought you here for just such a time as this. And if we can believe him for it, the greatest breakthrough that you've ever seen in your life or that this church has ever seen is coming in this generation. And all God's looking for is somebody to work with. Second Chronicles says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth, seeking to strengthen the hearts of those who love him. God wants to use you. Pastor said it earlier. He wants to bless you. He wants to bless you beyond your wildest imagination. He wants to open doors for you. God spoke to the prophet. He said, I has not seen, neither has ear heard, nor has it entered in the heart of man the things that God has prepared. It's already calendarized. It's already in his master plan. He has prepared for those who love him. How many of you love him this morning? Well, that means he's talking about you. And I want you to stand with me right now. And I want you to take your hands just like this. Oh, Father, I thank you for Pastor Rich, this leadership team, the elders of the church, these wonderful people, all these Chi Alpha guys who have an opportunity to, to live Jesus in a broken world, to deliver to them the only thing that works. Father, you, we're not here by accident. We're here by divine appointment. You have brought us here for just such a time as this. And Lord, we receive your word today. We receive your word today. Speak to our hearts. Change our lives. Lord, right now, we give our hearts to you. We give our lives to you. We give our talents to you. We give our resources to you. We give our children to you. We give our opportunities to you. We give our talents to you. Lord Jesus, take what we have and use it for your glory. 
Now, if it's in your heart to do that, take the upraised hand and then just lift it above your heads and make that offering to him. Jesus, today we want to go all in. We want to go all in, in this time and in this place. In Jesus' mighty name. Now, I want you to begin to open your mouth and you just make that offering of your life to the Lord in your own words. I already hear some people beginning to pray in a prayer language, and that's good and that's fine. You just begin to release the anointing of God that is in your life, that is on your life. Father, pour out your spirit, pour out your glory, pour out your power in this house right now. Lord, we are hungry for you. We are desperate for you. We are in need of you. And we lift up our hands and we say, come Holy Spirit. Just begin to open up your mouth and release your heart cry to the Lord. Just release your heart cry to the Lord right now. Brian, why don't you come and close in prayer? Jesus, we thank you. Jesus, you are the bridegroom and we're your beloved. And we thank you for loving us so well, Jesus, and caring for us. That you desire to wash us and cleanse us with the water of your word. Jesus, you desire to dress us and clothe us in your garments. Jesus, I thank you that you are the husband and we are your bride. Jesus, we ask that you would help us to lean into your love and into your character and into your care for us, to allow you to husband us, to allow you to dress us and clothe us and, and treat us and romance us the way you desire to, Jesus. We bless your holy name, Jesus, that this week will be a week of being romanced by you, Jesus, of being invited to your table and dining with you and you dining with us, Jesus. In your precious and holy name, we thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Hey, thank you again for joining us. We hope that our time together has been a blessing to you. And it doesn't have to end there. If you want to find last week's sermon, you can go to Facebook, YouTube, or you can listen to us on the audio podcast. You can let us know if you'd like to be further connected in a life group. But let me go ahead and pray as we close and say, God, thank you for being with us, Lord God. Thank you for helping us to carry your words, Lord God, and change our lives, Lord. Help us to carry your love to those around us. And we thank you for what you are doing. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you and thank you for being a part. We hope to see you soon.